Hello friends, welcome to Running and Fitness with Raj. This show will bring you exciting and interesting guests and give you specific and actionable advice on your running, fitness and general health. This is the second part of our highlight series from our episodes in 2021. Today our focus is on health topics and we cover three such topics and start with Mahesh Jairaman of Sepalika and we talk about diabetes. Mahesh and we discuss the fact that diabetes shows up as much as 7 years ahead of its detection then we discuss the linkage between lifestyle and diabetes and finally certain non allopathic treatment options for diabetes we move on then to dr charles samuels one of the world's most renowned sleep experts and we talk about the biggest cause for poor sleep how to set yourself up for good sleep and some key factors influencing sleep like nutrition hydration and caffeine Our last part today covers respiratory health with Dr. Satyanand Shastri, renowned lung surgeon, and we talk about overarching principles of good respiratory health, how to improve your immediate environment for better quality air, and advantages of nasal breathing. So happy listening, and here we start with Mahesh Jairaman. So it is uh, said that uh, diabetes uh, shows up. uh even as uh, you know early as 7 years before it is actually detected uh so can you throw some uh, light on that yeah absolutely because blood sugar touches every single part of our body so you will begin to get early signs of insulin resistance which will then eventually develop into type 2 diabetes so if you see these signs you must get both your fasting blood sugar and your fasting insulin checked and if your fasting insulin is not between 2 and 5 but if it is greater then you must start taking steps to reverse the insulin resistance so the signs could be something like this let's say you are somebody who's used to passing urine 6 or 7 times a day um, you know you are somebody who um, consumes an average amount of water which means say you are consuming about 30 ml per kg of body weight so if you are a 70 kg person and you are consuming let's say around 2 and 1/2 liters of water 2 and 1/2 to 3 you will likely need to pass urine 7 to 8 times a day now should that consistently begin to become greater than that number so if you need to use the washroom 10 11 times um or in the middle of the night you are forced to get up and go to the washroom then that is one of the early signs that diabetes has come this is happening because the kidneys is trying desperately to remove sugar from the blood by filtering it out through your urine so it is trying to move the corrosive substance out of your body so that is one sign another sign could be that after eating a meal especially a carb loaded meal you feel low energy within the first hour or so now this happens because you are having a yo-yo effect of sugar too much sugar in your meal means insulin comes rushing in and push, pushes all the sugar out of your blood into your cells so that leads to a drop in the sugar that is available for the brain so that makes you feel sleepy so post meal drowsiness especially if it's rampant and especially around uh, you know the 2 3 pm mark immediately after lunch that could be a sign of early diabetes another sign which is often missed and it's very easily visible this one is darkening of skin in the back of the neck under your armpits and in the groin area the technical term for this is acanthosis nigricans for those who want to look it up but basically insulin resistance leads to blackening of the skin it leads to excess pigmentation via melanin and that causes this to happen so if you see some of these signs you must get checked early and check your insulin Before moving on I wanted to request uh, all the listeners to please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. It will only take you a couple of minutes but it will help the show enormously and help other listeners to discover the show. So please do take a couple of moments to go and leave a rating and review on either Apple Podcasts or iTunes. If you are using another app which allows you to leave a comment or a rating or review like for example Castbox please do that either we also request you to please check out the website runfitraj.com and also if you have any comments or suggestions to please write to me directly at runningandfitnesswithraj@gmail.com 
You can follow all podcast related updates on Instagram at the handle running and fitness with Raj or on Facebook on the Facebook group running and fitness with Raj. Now let's get back to the show. Okay. Thank you for that. So moving on and staying on to this concept of lifestyle uh, changes, uh, just take us through some of the lifestyle changes that people can make uh, to make them less predisposed to getting diabetes later. Yeah. So the primary thing is to limit the number of times you eat. Nobody likes to hear this. Diabetes is a dietary disorder. We live in a world where food is rampantly around us. Imagine even 50 years ago, if you walked on the street, you would have to walk two streets to find an idli corner or a dosa corner. Contrast that to today where cafes are everywhere, pizza shops are everywhere, fruit juice shops are everywhere. We are constantly bombarded by the message that you must eat. When you add to this, doctors also saying you must have frequent meals all the time. You know, that's how your blood sugar will remain steady. It is the absolute opposite of what you must be doing. Just go back to what your ancestors did. Have two or three meals a day, preferably during the time when the sun is in the sky. This is the simplest thumb rule to follow. How will this help you prevent diabetes? Insulin is the hormone that is provoked when you eat. When you give periods of rest between two meals, insulin goes down. When insulin goes down, you don't develop insulin resistance. You don't develop insulin resistance, you will not become diabetic. So the simplest advice is at least start by fasting between dinner the previous night and breakfast the next day, anywhere between 12 to 14 hours at least. This is the simplest rule. Second rule to follow is a simple circadian rhythm rule, which is that when the sun is in the sky and at its highest point, have your main meal of the day at that time. And at both sides, when the sun is either just rising or just setting, have lighter meals. So if you can restrict yourself to three meals a day with no snacks in between, you will likely be able to at least take away 80% chances of you getting diabetes. This is one. Second thing is to reduce the overall amount of stress that you have. And this is especially true in the context of stress impacting sleep adversely. If during, if you go to bed in a stressed state, then your brain has to continue working through the night. The brain will demand sugar. The liver will release the excess, I mean the stored sugar in order to keep fueling the brain. So you have insulin and sugar exposure for much longer. During the time of the night when we sleep, 8 to 10 hours, the body is meant to have low levels of insulin. Because you're not doing anything that requires energy and insulin to act. So make sure that you improve your stress response. I can give you an interesting example to illustrate this. So one of my patients who came to me with a 10 and a half level of HbA1c. And he had been through everywhere and you know nothing seemed to help him. He was already on three diabetes medications. One metformin, one glimpiride, one citagliptin. All varieties of diabetes medicines. So when I looked into his lifestyle, it turned out that he was a uh, currency trader, somebody whose uh, life was very high stakes. He made lakhs and lost lakhs within the space of a couple of hours. And he was somebody who was under a lot of stress. So here's what happens when you have stress. The human body has not evolved for the last 10,000 years. I think we mentioned this in the last recording as well. So stress means you are trying to escape from a tiger. So what does the body do when you need to escape from a tiger? It diverts all energy from non-essential functions like digestion and reproduction and sends all the energy to your hands to fight, to your legs to flight and to your brain to record everything in ultra slow motion. So next time we can remember how we escaped the tiger. These are the three areas that require the energy. And where does this energy come from? The brain instructs your adrenal glands to go to the liver and pull out stored sugar into your bloodstream. So what happens is your blood sugar suddenly spikes when you have high stress. And the mechanism for disposing that sugar is, as you escape from the tiger, you have to run, you have to climb up a tree. All that process will use up the sugar. Now cut to this modern day gentleman where he's got stress and his body thinks he's being chased by a tiger. And so it pulls out sugar in, from his liver into his bloodstream and the sugar spikes. Except 
he has nowhere to run and no tree to climb he is just looking at a computer monitor so now the blood sugar remains elevated because it never got used up in physical activity so the trick i gave him is when i got into his clinical history i realized he had been a boxer in college so in his training room for him we hung a boxing bag for so every time i said you lose in a trade or you win in a trade go and punch the bag for 2 minutes so by punching the bag for 2 minutes i was making him burn up the excess sugar which he would have normally burnt up escaping from the tiger so once the tiger escape sugar was used up his overall levels of sugar started to come down so stress is the second element to manage when you are thinking of sugar all of us all day long have small episodes of stress that we no longer count as a big stress so we think it shouldn't affect our blood sugar but a traffic light that just turned red before you are going to cross it your boss telling you that you have missed a deadline even your wife reminding you that you forgot to you know bring some item for the house all of these are stressors and each of them moves your blood sugar up so if you have a daily ritual of meditation or breath work or even uh, gentle running or anything that can use up that blood sugar you will be uh, much less disposed to getting type 2 diabetes from stress so a follow up question is can in most cases ma- making the right choices around uh, lifestyle changes and diet help in preventing uh, the onset of diabetes absolutely not only prevent there are medical doctors allopathic mds like dr jason fung in ontario canada and several of his counterparts across the world including dr jichkar in very much in our own country in maharashtra who are proposing ways in which you can reverse your existing type 2 diabetes they are not allowed to claim it under law the indian medicine uh, you know the laws that govern doctors clearly mention that you ca- you are not allowed to claim you can reverse type 2 diabetes so they don't claim it openly however making the right dietary and lifestyle choices is actually helping type 2 diabetics come off their medication it just must be done under supervision because if you suddenly change something in your lifestyle and continue with your diabetes medicines it is likely that you are improved blood sugar because your blood sugar has automatically come lower and your diabetes medicine pushes that blood sugar even lower you could get into a low blood sugar or a hypoglycemic situation where you feel lightheaded etc so always look at uh, for existing diabetics the rule is you must work with an expert who understands how to wean you off your medication so it's a gradual process don't do cold turkey okay now okay let's say that uh, you know you need some sort of uh, treatment for your diabetes despite your best efforts you can't you know contracted it uh, allopathic medicines are something people are you know kind of aware of so can you take us through some of the alternates which are today available whether it is ayurveda alternate measure methods or things like acupressure and also how you know can you combine some of these uh, uh, methods to bring it under control and hopefully we knew of the dependence of medication yes absolutely uh, i think we are entering into an era of integrated medical practice where it takes more than one modality to actually help cover the entire breadth of patients something may work for somebody something else works for somebody else it's not that we are you know <coughs> one society all living very common looking lives that's not how it is uh, even with the genetic changes even our lifestyles are quite different so yes alternate approaches to diabetes do work i have seen them work in many patients what is important is those alternative approaches will always involve lifestyle changes uh, you know there is a old saying i keep repeating to my patients look for the key where you lost it don't look for the place that has the light if you lose the key in the darkness and then go and find it under the street lamp because there is light there you are not going to find it so what this means is unless you change your lifestyle diabetes will not go away blood sugar can go away in a hundred ways i have already told you that is a false thing to look at so don't look at blood sugar and say my blood sugar is under control with either allopathy or homeopathy or ayurveda that is not the point if your blood insulin is not under control you are still diabetic so lifestyle changes are crucial 
um, homeopathy, Ayurveda, etc. will almost always suggest some form of lifestyle changes, especially Ayurveda. Ayurveda doesn't even have a term for diabetes because it believes that it comes from a different kind of causation where the person has uh, inability to digest foods properly. So Ayurveda will take it from the digestion route, etc. Can you combine approaches? By all means. So for example, even a simple Ayurvedic home remedy like soaking methi seeds overnight and having the water and chewing the methi seeds may work for 60% of the population. So these are all things we share with each other via WhatsApp University. So these things do work, but remember they will only work for 60% of the people. For a person in whom the diabetes is being caused more by stress and less by diet, the methi water may not work. That is our understanding. There we find that ways of reducing stress, pranayama, using the herb ashwagandha, helping them sleep better, those are things that can lead to far better results. So the primary way to fix diabetes in our experience with all our patients is reduce the amount of processed carbs in your diet, increase good fats like ghee and processed uh, and cold pressed oils, remove all processed foods from your diet, help to manage stress better, often by like I'm combining here, you know, so I'm saying use pranayama, use ashwagandha. So we are already combining an Ayurvedic thing with a Western approach. And just do the commonsensical thing that naturopathy would suggest, which is only three meals a day and proper fasting in between. And once in a while, you know, few occasions of the year where we are naturally, according to our religion, asked to fast. Do those fasts. It really can make a huge difference to your diabetes risk over the rest of the year. So if you're a person uh, who um, follows Islam, then keep the rosa. The rosa is not just for some religious purpose. The long period of the daytime fast actually improves insulin sensitivity. It's been proven in actual research studies published on PubMed and NIH. This is not just uh, you know something that we are making up to uh, you know um, promote religion. Similarly, for Christians, there is a period of Lent. Uh, the first meal happens at 3 p.m. You know, so in Hinduism we have any number of fasts followed by any number of feasts. So from Ekadeshi Vrata on a monthly basis to all kinds of Kadava Chauth, we've got all sorts of ways in which fasting is built into our religion. So even including that, so combining these small, small approaches can make a big difference to both protecting you and to help you wean off medicines. Now we discuss issues related to sleep with Dr. Charles Samuels. So uh, coming back to recreational uh, athletes and what you have seen, uh it's 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 you know it's clear that it's it's uh, somewhat prevalent at least if not widely prevalent in terms of sleep issues so can you take us through uh first some of the factors contributing to this uh, uh why people have uh, have this because intuitively one would feel that you know if you have lack of sleep like for example day before yesterday night i didn't sleep well by afternoon yesterday i was very groggy i was having a mild headache and i knew all i needed was to take a nap and my headache will go away so there is there are in most cases there is a physical cue or cues which your body gives you when you mm -hmm. have had sleep deprivation and so why do you know why do people just not change their habits i mean what yeah. what's what are the reasons well, so this is important. So I'm going to go through all of the basics for you so that when the listeners, they can they can leave the show knowing what to look for themselves. And it's very straightforward. So but human beings, when it comes to human behavior, sleep and weight control are two of the most fragile parts of our human physiology. Okay. Okay. So when they're disturbed, human beings don't do what's needed. Their intuition is not to do what's needed to correct the problem. It's a huge, it's just human behavior. They're not doing anything wrong. They're just not aware of what to do. So one is that in order to have normal restful sleep, you must know how much you need, not how much you can get away with, Okay. but what you need. So most people will have, oh, I can get away with six hours a night and I'm fine. Well, that's all well and good, but that's not optimal. So most human beings, your population, which would be adults in middle ages, would need seven and a half to eight hours of sleep a night. That's what we would recommend. Um, okay. About 
10% of your population have insomnia, so they can't sleep. They have difficulty falling asleep and staying asleep. And as they get older, that gets worse in terms of mostly staying asleep. So that actually shortens sleep and disturbs sleep. So those two factors are really important. If you have short, you don't get enough. Or if you have the right amount, but it's broken, that will disrupt the restorative quality of your sleep. And the downstream effect will be next day consequences cognitively, behaviorally, and physically. Cognitively, memory concentration, very straightforward. Behaviorally, irritability, very straightforward. Or sleepiness. Yep. So people react to sleep loss in two ways. They either get sleepy or they get irritable because they're trying to stay awake when they're sleepy. Yep. And that shows up in their behavior or they can have things like headaches, like you mentioned. And you know the medicine when you have a nap, the headache goes away. So, you know, and it's like if you, you know, if you did a long run and didn't hydrate, you know that you could end up with a headache and some muscle cramping. Yep. And you you know the solution, electrolytes and fluid. It's the same with sleep. So it's really important. Um, And it can be very much on just one night of sleep loss, uh, you know, like minimum two to four hours, and you can feel these effects. Then the physical thing that's really important to understand is that when you restrict sleep or you break up sleep, you change the appetite in the brain for high and you and it goes towards high calorie dense foods. So it affects weight control. So many recreational runners are trying to lose weight. And I'm sure you're I would I'm sure, you know, but your listeners should know like you can't run enough to lose weight. You don't run or exercise to lose weight. That's completely useless. My favorite line in this is you can't outrun a burger. So (laughs) no, it's impossible. So, and that's a good, good way to put it. Can I use that? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, it's not mine. I I believe it was, uh, (laughs) it was in one of the studies published in the British Journal of Medicine, the first line or the the surgeon general or the equivalent had written a preface or an introduction and he's, he said this, he said, you can't yeah. outrun. So don't read this if you are looking for exercise to compensate for poor it, diet. It, it doesn't, you know. And and so when you lose sleep, though, it affects your metabolism and the storage of energy. So one is you, you crave high-calorie-dense foods. Two is you store the energy. You don't burn it. And so um, these are very important factors for the average individual to understand that really sleep is very important to keep these things stable. And of course, if we didn't have technology, it would just be that people ignored their sleep and didn't pay attention to it. But now with technology, they actually have something to do that gets in the way of them sleeping. Okay. And that's a big issue. Technology is the number one barrier to normal sleep health in the world today. Okay. can probably guess where you are going with this and I want to probe you a little more. Mm-hmm. So you are talking of things like screen, you know, yep. close, close to bedtime, which is which will have an impact when you try to sleep. Uh, just, uh, you know, take us through a little more or dive a little, little more on how people can, you know, ch- change their behavior or what should they really be doing. Yeah. Uh, to, to break this, uh, you know, the break cycle. wishes to break the cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So what you do, like if you're let's, you know, let's focus on recreational people, you know, not an athlete, because we have way more control over athletes than we do on our average runner. So I think what's important when you're a recreational runner, but, you know, running competitively and you take it seriously is that, you know, you start by looking at your recovery, not your training which is the absolute opposite of what everyone does. So, and your recovery needs to be composed of your sleep first. So in other words, you have to get your sleep. That's the foundation of recovery. So you say, you know, I need seven hours, I need eight hours, and that's what I need. So you set that. Then you set your wake-up time and you go backwards. So that's how you set your clock for your, what we call a sleep window. Okay. You always, it's always set based on wake up time because, of course, wake up time is determined by school or work or, you know, obligations and whatnot. And then you go backwards and that can be a problem for some who have to wake up really early because the brain doesn't go to bed early. 
Yeah. You know, it's not easy for the brain to fall asleep at eight o'clock at night if you're if your natural rhythm is 11. So you have to take these things into consideration. Um, and that's how you set your sleep period. And then you do everything else around that. You do your training around. So I have people waking up four in the morning to train. Well, that's ridiculous. Sooner or later, it's going to catch up with you. There are very few long distance endurance runners who can wake up at four and, you know, run on a daily basis and keep that up for many, many months at a time. It's, it's not, and as if you're getting eight hours a night of sleep, sure you can, you know. Yeah, which means you are, you have to be in bed or asleep by 8 p.m., which is. It's ridiculous. For mo- most, most people most who have people. a family, yeah, it's quite, quite difficult, right? Yeah. yeah. And so that's what I find is that athletes, in order to get their training session in or jamming it in at some point, that's ridiculous, waking up way too early. So I have a big issue with that. And I talk to athletes about that all the time, especially recreational athletes, because they're doing this. And um, and they feel the consequences. The moment I take away morning training from someone who comes in to see me with a sleep problem, it's like they're fixed. It's hard for them to give it up. But man, then we start talking about how to train smarter. Okay. You know, and so it's always built around, OK, you got to get this amount of sleep and you got to wake up at this time and then you got to go to work or you got to go to school. And, you know, where can we find the time for you to get your, let's say, hour of run in? And it doesn't have to be continuous. You can do two 30-minute blocks. You know, um, you can do all kinds of variations on um, on running with fart licks and um, you know uh, interval training and so many different things you can do to get your volume in. Um, and we do this all the time and have people train. And when you don't have time to train, you can do um, muscle work. Um, you can do functional range conditioning. You can do um, uh, other low intensity stuff and then save your high intensity stuff for when you're well rested. Before moving on, I wanted to request uh, all the listeners to please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. It will only take you a couple of minutes, but it will help the show enormously and help other listeners to discover the show. So please do take a couple of moments to go and leave a rating and review on either Apple Podcasts or iTunes. If you are using another app which allows you to leave a comment or a rating or review, like for example, CastBox, please do that either. We also request you to please check out the website runfitraj.com. And also if you have any comments or suggestions, to please write to me directly at runningandfitnesswithraj at gmail.com. You can follow all podcast-related updates on Instagram at the handle Running and Fitness with Raj or on Facebook on the Facebook group Running and Fitness with Raj. Now let's get back to the show. And uh, what are the, I mean, screen is obviously the single biggest issue you have identified. Are there any other factors which affect the quality of uh, sleep? Uh, like, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just uh, forwarding or taking uh, this question a little earlier now, what mm-hmm. I had in mind. Things like, for example, caffeine. Uh, like, oh, yeah, uh, I, I, that's what. So if, yeah. So can you just talk us through some of the other issues yeah. as, as well? So as soon as you said that immediately, it's nutrition and hydration. And in hydration, it's uh, electrolyte replacement. So these things are critical. Okay. Yeah, because if you're going to bed poorly hydrated, low on electrolytes, you're going to be cramping. You're going to have a crappy sleep. That just makes the problem worse. So these things are really important to have electrolyte replacement. Like I'm drinking, like here where I am, it's extremely dry. So it's a minimum of three to four liters a day, even without training. Okay. You know, and, and I'm always, there's always an electrolyte form of replacement. I have three different kinds that depending on what I'm doing, I'll use. Um, and so I'm very attentive to that because of the cramping, you know, and then it disturbs your sleep. Um, so uh, this is really important. So, and then nutrition, you know, eating right um, and scheduling your eating so that it, it fits with your sleep schedule is really important because large meals at the end of the day can totally disrupt sleep. Okay. Um, and, you know, people are doing all kinds of funky diets from full on keto diets to um, uh, the intermittent fasting. And it has to fit in with their training. You know, it has to fit. You can't just do everything. Um, and so you've got to be careful about what you're doing. Um, so 
again, because it always goes back to recovery. Uh, so when you talk about things like caffeine, nicotine, alcohol, they have a huge effect on sleep. So, of course, we're not talking to a population that smokes, but nicotine is more stimulating to the brain than caffeine. And oh, okay. smokers don't know that. They smoke okay. before they go to bed to relax, but the problem is they don't sleep. Okay. It's extremely stimulating. So caffeine, what's important to understand about caffeine, especially in athletes, um, whether you're elite or recreational, caffeine is very helpful, but it needs to be used strategically. Many of these recreational athletes are just drinking co coffee indiscriminately okay. to maintain wakefulness, which is not the way to use it. And caffeine has a potent effect on reducing sleep drive. So that's how it works physiologically. And so the amount and the proximity to bedtime is critical. So, you know, it's important. I have two double espressos in the morning. That's it. Okay. If I'm going to do an exercise session and I'm pretty tired, I might have a double espresso before that. That's it. That's okay. very rare for me because we all know that caffeine can help with exercise performance. Right. But I would have to be super tired or have had a really stressful day where I'm just not feeling it, where I might have a coffee before I go and train, you know, my training sessions are no more than an hour. No way. Sunday runs could be two to three hours, but, but nothing during the week that's more than an hour because I'm busy. Um, and I have to save time in the day to do, you know, have dinner and just relax. Um, so these are the ways that I manage these things. Um, alcohol, terrible for sleep, especially in the older recreational athletes. So, you know, I'm, I'm 63. So as you transition into your 50s, guys are, and women are going to notice that alcohol is a very disruptive effect on sleep. Okay. And so um, you need to be cognizant of that. And it might change how, how much you drink, how many nights a week you drink. Um, and again, it affects your training for sure. Okay. You know, okay. um, so those would be the top three. Vaping really bad. Yeah, it's similar to smoking, I guess. In, in terms Worse. Of the Worse. potency of the nicotine is much higher okay. in vaping. Okay. Okay. Now we switch to respiratory health with Dr. Satyanand Shastri. So uh, when it comes to uh, the, you know, the respiratory health, uh, which, which you described in fair amount of uh, detail and also some of the, I would say, shortcomings in our understanding today, especially compared to some other, uh, you know, some other uh, aspects like cardiovascular health or diabetes. Uh, what are some of the uh, overarching principles that uh, listeners should be aware of when it comes to uh, respiratory health? And as a kind of a linked question is, are there things that you can do every day to improve your uh, respiratory health? I mean, like, for example, we brush our teeth every day for dental hygiene and dental health. Uh, so are there some things we can do for respiratory health as well? Yes, uh, sure, Raj. But let me actually back up a little bit. Okay. Uh, I just want to again compare it with cardiovascular disease for a short time. Uh, I'm sure you know and most of your listeners will understand that cardiovascular health has been studied over a longitudinal period of time of many years. So okay. 30 years, 40 years, 50 years of huge population sets. So just to just to you know simplify this, when you say longitudinal study, it's the same set of individuals whose cardiac health is monitored over decades. Correct. That's that's the definition of a longitudinal study. So the individuals don't change. Say for example, in your case, maybe from your twenties to sixties or etc. Is is that the way to understand? Yeah, that's that's the absolute correct definition of longitudinal health. Okay. So then you know what happens when certain interventions are put in or certain exposures are allowed to happen to that individual by contrast with those in whom those interventions have not been put in okay. or exposures have not been allowed. And and even within the same individual, right? I mean, before their intervention, after yeah. the so, intervention, or maybe 10 years back where they were and now where correct, they are. Correct. So that's okay. the definition. Now, by, for SPT, you know, everybody knows this. There's one important longitudinal study that defined respiratory health from one parameter. And everybody knows that it's smoking. Okay. So right up until the 1960s, nobody really associated smoking with lung cancer. Yeah. And even today, smoking is more connected with cardiac ill health 
so it's high blood pressure is the build up of plaque in arteries but smoking and the causation of lung cancer and the causality of it is very very well identified which has led to a sea change in in the way people appreciate governments non government organizations individuals have been able to put in place many smoking and anti smoking uh, campaigns you know, campaigns and policies and things like that sure so let me just now come back to your original question why is respiratory health important and what are the things that we need to do to be able to identify how good our respiratory health is okay it's funny raj we never think about breathing till yeah, we, we don't <laughs> till it's all we ever think about that's true a patient who short of breath will only think about breathing and nothing else but at all other points in time we never think about breathing it's it's very very important so we need to know how to um, you know address this issue of respiratory health and let me go through a few things that we do to maintain our dental health for example you gave a good example of that uh, what are the things that we need to do every day to be able to ensure that our respiratory health is great okay first of all you know i'll tell you you have to look at your respiratory system as a front line warrior okay and it's not just the lungs so you know most people feel that the respiratory system are just the lungs begins and ends with lungs yeah because that's where the oxygen gets in and gets into your blood and the carbon dioxide comes out of your blood and gets into the lungs it actually begins with the nose okay it begins with the nose with the mucus in your nose the sinuses the windpipe the air pipes that go into the lungs etc and we can't see them but they're very very fine microscopic little uh, hair like structures that constantly push up all the secretions that are there in our respiratory passage and bring it out okay. and allow us to blow our nose or allow us to cough it away that keeps at bay a huge amount of particulate and non particulate um insults uh, if i may put it that way that to the body to to the respiratory system which is the gateway into the body okay so you need to keep your respiratory system in good health okay it's just like a defense any defense force if your defense force at the border is in good health you're going to prevent many attacks and prevent you know the sad outcomes of these attacks when they come in so your yeah. respiratory system needs to be great and what are the things we need to do we're living in a different environment now it's not necessarily that we are always in an in- internal environment we'll be outdoors we'll be in other internal environments we'll be in places where there are lots of people we'll be in places where there are no people so we need to define each one of them before we uh, actually <clears throat> decide on what should be the good habits that we do okay so let me come to the overarching principles like in dental in dental health we always tell our children you get up in the morning brush your teeth before you go to bed at night brush your teeth try and brush your teeth every time you have a meal don't eat you know sweet foods don't eat sticky sweet foods for example they they're the ones that give you caries so what should we do for respiratory health first most important thing what can you do personally and what can you do to influence yeah personally don't smoke okay that's important and as an influencer encourage those around you not to smoke as well okay don't limit it to your family because you've got some amount of influence with your family but it's important that your friends your social circle i'm sure you know all of us are intelligent and mature enough to be able to put across this principle fairly well that smoking is not good for health yeah and i can tell you it's not only not good for health for the smoker it's not good for health i'm sure everybody's heard of second hand smoke yes there are more than 7000 you know terrible chemicals that come out of the tobacco and the cigarette uh, paper or the pipe or the bd or whatever it is you're smoking more than 7000 chemicals harmful harmful chemicals very harmful chemicals that can cause real ill health so i would say the first two things to protect this great frontline warrior don't smoke and do all you can to encourage those around you not to smoke okay so that that's the that is a couple of uh, overarching uh, principles that uh, that you that you mentioned now i mean obviously as you said uh, a little while earlier we never think of respiratory health till we have some breathing breathing difficulty and you know in a way breathing has been uh, you know part of ancient tradition modern tradition 
uh, there are a lot of you know a number of scientists researchers yoga teachers fitness experts all are promote good breathing techniques uh so what can you tell us about it yeah so uh, again you know thanks raj for that and you know all all your listeners i'm sure they've done a huge amount of research already on different they different india for example is the home of yoga yes. and we send yoga across the world and similarly there are other ancient civilizations which have promoted their own breathing techniques as well so i don't want to dwell on the type of exercise that you should do sure. and what kind of exercise i just want to go to the principles of why you should do these kind of things to keep your respiratory health great number 1 there's a strong belief that if you're indoors somehow the air quality is much better than outdoors okay but i can tell you that there is some misconception in that you're not protected if you're indoors as compared to outdoors unless there's particulate matter like in some cities of the world where it's really horrible yeah but you can do some things to maintain your respiratory health and improve your breathing by doing a few simple things at home number 1 many of us live in homes which have got air conditioners just check your filters okay because lots of stuff particularly moldy stuff can get in over there and you can be exposed to this kind of stuff which over the years can produce severe respiratory you know uh, debilitating respiratory in okay. okay the second is uh, most urban centers across the world are sort of infested with pigeons yeah the fine hair of pigeons downy fur of pigeons actually can also cause they contain many harmful material stuff bacteria parasites as well and they can cause respiratory health so make sure that you do a regular sort of clean up of pigeons pigeons come home to roost no matter when how often they've been driven away so you need some special techniques to make sure that your ledges and things like that of the apartments that you're living in are um away from you know or not exposed to so as many pigeons as is possible improve the quality of hair of air indoors second is i mean i can't emphasize it i know all of us have been under lockdown for 18 months world over and we've gone through a very severe stressful period of covid but as and when it's possible get outside okay if it's not harmful get outside get some exercise it just gives your lungs a great chance to feel you know active Okay. and and participate in your body's defense like the front uh, frontline warrior it is something not connected with your lungs that you know has that we've been taught in this covid time don't forget hand hygiene okay we constantly fiddle with our face yeah we're putting on our specs taking off our specs wiping our mouth eating food touching our nose i think that and our hands do many other things as well so it's if covid has taught us anything it should be that hand hygiene is in directly connected with your respiratory health okay or respiratory disease and illness so maintain good hand hygiene okay and i mentioned to you about these fine hair like stuff that is there inside your respiratory passages they're called cilia yeah they're like the oars of a boat now you're from kerala so you know the boat race that is there in kerala there are yep. about 50 people who are rowing with multiple oars it looks just like that actually if you magnify it and look at under, under a microscope the cilia look like that pushing in one direction but if you actually notice the boats that are going those oars work well because they are in water which has got a certain fluidity to it yes imagine if the oars had to row through a river of tar it would be very difficult or or sand or whatever uh, well fluid to to uh, put okay, in fluid, fluid. tar okay. tar or something very thick very viscous very viscous it would be tough to row so the cilia had need the same environment okay the more liquid your secretions inside the easier it is for the cilia to push it up towards your mouth and nose for you to bring it out the thicker your secretions the more difficult it is and your secretions won't come out and secretions actually have gotten them all the bad bugs so hydrate yourself i don't know what the normal hydration because it depends upon the climate that you're in but on an average you need between a liter and a half and 2 liters of water a day to maintain yourself in good hydration unless you are actually sweating a lot because of some physical work exercise you know living in a very hot environment etc well you may not sweat if you're in a dry environment but you're still going to lose a lot moisture of moisture or water yeah okay yeah. understood okay um so i i would say that these are the basic overarching principles got it okay so uh, we had earlier a guest uh, patrick mckeven who's uh, very famous uh, for the breathing techniques and he personally had a 
you know, very bad uh, phase in his life when he was young, when he was an asthma patient and through breathing techniques, he has almost completely overcome it and he has become a big, big advocate. And one of the things that he mentioned in our, uh, in our podcast with him was using your nose to breathe, even when you are doing exercise. Now, you know, you are very aware that when people are doing uh, exercise uh, often and especially if it is slightly hard exercise like a fast run or a fast cycling or a fast swim or what have you you end up using uh, you know using your mouth to get in air and things like that so the couple of advantages that he explained were obviously one of the things you touched upon earlier that you know everything starts from the nose itself and it moistens the air and as it goes inside mouth doesn't moisten because mouth doesn't have that ability plus uh, the you know, the, when you breathe through the nose, it goes deeper into your lungs or the, it goes into the diaphragm and which is where the lower part of your lungs is where the exchange happens. So quality of the air you are getting into your body is quality is much better. These are some of the factors. So I just wanted to pick your thoughts on uh, that. I'm not you know, obviously expecting you to challenge and things like that as much as you know, just in your words to hear because exercise is something which all of us, the listeners, all of us are doing as well, right? Yeah, so I think it's very important uh, what Dr. McEwen mentioned, actually nasal breathing is the way we should breathe okay. and all the reasons that you mentioned. The nose has got hairs in it as well, which trap, trap you know, the bigger stuff. It's got a moistening mechanism. It's surrounded by sinuses, you know, which are around your face, which not only give a timber to your voice, but they also help moisten and humidify the air that goes in. And if you try breathing through your mouth, you'll find that it becomes a raspy kind of... Absolutely. Your throat becomes raw. Yeah. So, unless it's, you know, you need to breathe so much of oxygen because you're so breathless that you need to use your nose and mouth, which happens if you're, you know, running at a quick, fast pelt somewhere, you'll, you'll do mouth breathing, but it's better not to. But, you know, just to back up a bit. Okay. Okay. we have to imagine that the lungs, which are the repository of where this air goes in, they're like balloons. They expand and contact and they're soft tissues. But they're encased in the hard shell of the chest cavity. Yeah. Surrounded by the ribs on three sides and the spine at the back. And the ribs have got some muscles in between it. But for all practical purposes, this soft balloon is trapped within a hard shell. Yeah. And... The first thing that we need to do to be able to get our lungs to do the best so that we continue breathing through our nose to give the best drink, for example, drink Coca-Cola ice chilled for best results. I mean, it's, it's that simple. So for us, for humans, for animals, whoever has got a respiratory system, it's your posture, which is very, very important. Okay. If your posture is good, then the lungs maximize that tight space that they are in. Okay. If your posture is poor, then you're putting the lungs through a stressful situation. If they're about to, if they're supposed to get X amount of air inside, they're not, they're going to get X minus something. So you will find that breathing through the nose may not be enough. And this is important. See, when you're sitting down, your posture, when you're standing up, your posture, it's easy to maintain it. But when you're running, when you're playing a sport, when you're exerting yourself, that's when we lose up on our posture. And for those of you who are runners, I'm sure you will be able to uh, appreciate that when you run more erect with a better posture, your respiratory system functions very well as a great support to you. If you if your posture is not good, then it's no. Not. And this is a wonderful example because uh, you know it's a common you know it's it's a common theme when we talk of good running form, which all the coaches tell you is exactly they use exactly the same words as you. As you said, like, you know, be erect, be tall, you know, think about as if somebody is pulling a string from the top of your head and that's the way your posture sh- posture should be. And number two, which a lot of people do, including, you know, when I get tired, even I am, you know, I am guilty of the same mistake, which is look down. And if you get your chin down, actually what you are doing, I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mark of tiredness, sure. But what is also happening is you are now not getting even enough air as you can get by if by being tall and you know erect and you know moving in the in in that in in that way and this i can tell you from experience i mean we do it we drop our you know drop our chin but actually you are adding to the woes because as it is you are tired you need more oxygen and instead you are now giving the body lesser 
uh, lesser oxygen. And I know it, you know, practically often it's easier said than done, but the more you can train and have that muscle memory, I have, I have seen it personally as well that it makes a big difference. It genuinely makes a big difference. Yeah, you're, you're correct, Raj. But again, I just want to come to why is this important? Sure. It's important because lungs are soft tissue trapped in a hard shell. If the hard shell is in a bad position to begin with, that soft tissue inside is not going to maximize itself. Absolutely. So you need to put that hard shell in the best possible position. Easy way to explain is explain it is, of course, maintain your posture well. Now, as far as breathing is concerned, there, there are many, many breathing exercises. And I'm sure all your listeners have heard about diaphragmatic breathing, yes. which is an efficient muscular breathing that uses the big muscle that separates from your tummy from your chest to be able to allow you to do breathing at rest. And if you practice it, it can help you a lot. It's much better than all the other muscles of your chest put together. The biggest muscle that actually works your breathing is your diaphragm. But we need to practice it. So for example, if I'm sitting here and maybe your listeners can't see it, but if my chest is inflating and deflating each time, there's a limit to which I can do it. I'll get fatigued because these muscles are voluntary muscles and they get tired after some time but the diaphragm is an involuntary muscle it can go it does go on actually a whole life yeah and we don't even realize it but we need to practice it there are many techniques by which you can practice it and i'm sure all your listeners will sure. google it up and and uh, know about it okay thank you very much to all the listeners Please check out the podcast website runfitraj.com that is r u n f i t r a j.com it has all the podcasts it has all the show notes and there is a very useful search function as well you can reach out to me on my social media handles which are running and fitness with raj on both instagram and facebook and you can also email me on running and fitness with raj at gmail.com please let me know if you have any questions or specific guests you would like to see on the show I also request you all again to please subscribe to the podcast and spread the word. Please also leave a review on iTunes as it will help enormously to grow the show. We will continue to bring you exciting and interesting guests and give specific and actionable advice. Stay safe, stay healthy and till the next show. Goodbye.